Hello, friends. Today's guest on the podcast is Roger Volkman. Roger is a retired orthopedic surgeon and a lifelong climber, and he has a really fascinating story. Roger suffered a very severe stroke in 2010 at the age of 55. He was in a coma for roughly two months and was not expected to walk again. Roger is an incredibly tough and an incredibly determined man, and he has not only managed to regain his ability to walk, but he has also been able to return to climbing. And in May of 2019, with the help of some friends, Roger was able to successfully summit Devil's Tower after two previous failed attempts. In addition to being tough and determined, Roger is also incredibly kind and intelligent. And he knows an awful lot about the human body and what was happening on a physiological level during the different stages of his incident and recovery. And it was fascinating to hear about his journey through the stroke, about coming out of a coma, and about the different phases of his recovery. We also talked about Roger's five principles of life, how he was inspired to become a stroke thriver rather than merely a stroke survivor, and about a few of his early climbing experiences growing up as a farmer in the Midwest. I reference a short documentary about Roger throughout the interview, and unfortunately, that film is not yet available to the public. I believe it's still making its way around some film tours, but I'll be sure to keep you guys posted about that because it is fantastic and definitely worth watching. I did link to the trailer in the show notes, and you can find that at thenuggetclimbing.com. During the sound check, I was asking Roger about a treehouse that he built for his daughter, Annika, many years ago, because it has got to be the coolest treehouse I have ever seen. So at the start of the interview, you'll hear Roger telling a story about building the spiral staircase that he built to access the treehouse from the ground below. I left it in because I thought it was pretty entertaining. Thank you guys for listening. As always, much love to all of you. Please enjoy this illuminating conversation with Roger Volkman. Did you put the pole up by yourself in the post? Well, I had to put a pulley way up in there. I had to go yeah. up the ladder, up into the treehouse, up into the second story out a window up onto the top of the roof and then about 15 feet up one of the trees <laughs> and it had to hang a pulley there uh-huh. and about a one and a half inch hemp rope. Then I put the one butt end of the pole into the hole and I tied the rope to the higher up on the pole and I started pulling on the pulley with the tractor on the rope and the, the pole came off the ground off the driveway but it didn't go straight up it went up and it <laughs> fell sideways oh, so i had to hook a second rope to it to keep it going up where i wanted to mm-hmm. and up and down the treehouse about 20 times that day up the treehouse <laughs> out the window up on the roof up the tree <laughs> moving things around moving different ropes and eventually after a long day i got the thing up in the hole vertical hmm. and then i this is when the holes are already cut in the pole and then i had to just make the staircase okay and now it is as you see it today, finally. Yeah, if we have time, I'll show it to you. You have a really incredible shop, and you're always building something. Do you have a project that you're working on now? Not in the shop. I made this picnic table and one over there, and another one that we're not at, of course. And I made park benches and 
rolling cabinets, kayaks. <laughs> right now I don't have anything on the on the burner. I make these pine cone magnets, of course. Yeah. Yeah, they're very cool. And when I get these trees cut down into dry lumber, I'm going to make a dresser out of one. Okay. And my other retirement plan is to make a miniature log cabin for our grandkids oh. out of old fence rails. Okay. It'll just be an 8 by 8 foot log cabin. We'll haul it up on the hill here somewhere. <laughs> That's fun. And I'm going to make the furniture for that. Of course, they don't need a table and chairs and a counter and maybe a bed. All I'm miniature? Use, use that piss elm wood for that, too. But that's a couple of years down the road. Okay. I tell people I'm gonna when I retire I'm gonna build a a retirement wood shop in a detached house. <laughs> I'm planning a similar thing, but with a climbing wall in the shop. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you and I connected through our friend Carol Costin, and I also have a connection to you through my best friend who I grew up with, Nathan Getson. Mm-hmm. Nathan worked with a company called North Forty for some years, and they made a beautiful 16-minute-long documentary about an incident that you had in 2010, um, where you had a you were driving. It sounds like with your wife and daughter in the car, and had a very severe stroke. Well, it's actually a two-stage story. Okay. Steve. I had what they call a carotid dissection, which is a failure of the artery. In this case, that goes from the heart to the brain, the carotid artery. An artery is somewhat like a garden hose. It has layers in the wall, like a garden hose. And you'll see once in a while a garden hose, it'll blister like plywood. The layers of the wall will separate. Mm. And in the case of a dissection, the layers of the wall of the artery will lose their attachment to one another, and they'll blister like plywood that gets wet. Mm -hmm. When that happens, it weakens the wall, and blood, instead of going down the channel, will break into the into the layers between the walls and it goes so far and it'll burst back out or block and usually that results in damage to the artery and often a clot when you think about the carotid artery is fixed in the skull it's also fixed in your chest Hmm. so every time you turn or twist your head that artery is under stress you turn your head behind you that artery rotates probably 90 degrees and you think of how many times you do that in your life. Hmm. Or in my case, I spent years and years building silo. Okay. Back in the Midwest where you have to look up time after time. Every time a stave gets pulled up to the top, you have to follow it till it gets to the top. Mm-hmm. So you're looking up and down, up and down hundreds of thousands of times in the course of a summer. When you ride bike, you turn your head back to look around. Mm-hmm. Every time you do, both the arteries have to, to all four arteries have to twist. So there's all that mechanical stress, probably in most cases some sort of a genetic flaw in the collagen that makes them prone to that. Hmm. If it occurs in your main aorta, it's usually a death sentence. And okay. It does occur there occasionally. It's actually more common to occur in the vertebral artery, which goes through your right through your vertebrae in your neck. Oh, wow. In my case, that was the carotid artery, which is the one by your neck in front. And we were riding bike over in the San Juan Islands on a short vacation. And our daughter and I and her boyfriend. And I recall coming to an intersection and we were going to turn to the left. So I turned my head to the left. And at that moment, I passed out. All I remember is kind of floating through the air. And the thing that was interesting is that 
I somehow held my head up. I passed out, but I didn't come down with my head dropped. I came down face first. Huh. Onto the pavement, over the bike handle, and over the handlebars. Yeah. I, I just recall that sort of fleeting, floating through the air face first. <sighs> That's about all I remember. And when I woke up, I was laying on the pavement all bloodied up. My arms weren't in front of me to protect me. They were behind me by my legs, hmm. drawn like that. And so I landed on my face with my arms like this, and I got scraped up on my knees, the back of my wrist, and my face, of course, got all scraped up. I took out four teeth. Oh, wow. And then Ani called 911, and the paramedics came from Friday Harbor. When the lady got there, my pulse was 30. Yeah. So in retrospect, what happened, your carotid artery in front has an anatomic feature called the carotid body, which is right below your jaw. It's a pressure sensor. When your pressure is high, it sends a signal to the heart to slow down because it tries to modulate your pressure to the brain, which is critical. Mm. If your pressure is too low, it speeds up and strengthens the heart to make it beat harder and faster. Mm -hmm. And the body is right about here. Well, when the carotid artery dissected, the blood went up and somehow interfered with the sympathetic nerves coming out of that carotid body. And that, that... told the heart to slow down to a, a really low pulse and that's why I passed out hmm. when she got there my pulse was still only 30 and normally it'd probably be at least 80 and in the injury it'd probably be 150 yeah so the the section itself didn't cause the stroke but it caused me to pass out okay and the, the fortunate thing was that I'd, I came down on my face face first if I had been knocked out and dropped with my head lowered, I would have landed on the back of my head, and I probably would have hyperflexed my neck and instead of ending up with paraplegia, I probably would have been a quadriplegic, if not a bad head injury. Wow, yeah. So that was somewhat serendipitous, just happened to be holding my head up. I don't know why. Hmm. Well, then, it was all, this whole thing was in the background of, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, and on the 17th of June of that year, an F5 tornado came through and wiped out the farm. Oh, it literally wow. sucked it right off the map. It was, <laughs> I'd built a dairy barn when I was younger and two silos uh-huh. and a shop. And it took everything off. All the trees, the house, the barn, 17 buildings, killed a bunch of cattle. No kidding. All the silos, everything went up. And uh, we were going to go back to check it out. This was probably about the 8th of July. About five days after that dissection had occurred. Well, when the dissection occurred and I passed out, paramedic came, picked up my teeth, put them in a jar. <laughs> One of my front incisor teeth was actually stuck in my lip. And I, oh. she wanted my teeth, so I pulled it out of my lip through the front because it would come all the way through my lip. <laughs> then she took me to Friday Harbor, and then they flew me to Bellingham. Mm-hmm. To the ER. Well, I knew that my best climbing buddy from medical school worked there. So I had the staff call him and see if he would take care of me. Well, he came in from home. Name is Wade. He'd be worth talking to, by the way. He's a wonderful man. <laughs> okay. He came in from home and took care of me. Tried to put my teeth back in. I didn't want my teeth back in. It hurt too much. <laughs> Scrubbed me up. They checked out my heart and my head. My head mostly. Okay. And I checked out. And in fact, I went home and I stayed overnight at his house on a lake. He lives on a lake home there. I didn't get much blood in his sheets, fortunately, but I was a mess. I stayed overnight, and I never had any immediate consequence. I was pretty lucid. 
maybe in retrospect, Susan said I was kind of missing a few beats, but I was <laughs> I was lucid enough to get up in the morning, go back to Bellingham where our kids lived in a condo, mm-hmm. came back here, spent the night, went to work on Monday. Oh, wow. The injury occurred on Saturday. Yeah. Sunday we came home. Monday I went to work, and I probably did two or three total joints working all day. No I looked kidding. like death warmed over. <laughs> My face four was missing, scarred, missing teeth. teeth. <laughs> Good thing you had your, your surgeon mask on. I was kind of badly scraped, but... <laughs> I had the cardiologist check me because I was worried about my heart, and he put me on a 24-hour monitor, Holter monitor, and that checked out okay, and he said it was okay to work because I was reasonably lucid. Mm-hmm. And then Tuesday, I worked all day in the office, which was customary, and Wednesday, I worked all day in the OR in the other hospital. And then we had planned a trip to Minnesota on Thursday, and I think that's when we flew back, the whole family, three kids and us. Flew to Minneapolis. Rented a car, went to St. Cloud, had dinner at Perkins. St. Cloud is probably an hour and a half from the home farm. Mm. I remember walking out of Perkins and there was a huge thunder lightning storm with a rainbow all at the same time. It was just a spectacular sight. I was driving. We were going there from home an hour and a half or so. And as the video showed, Sue was in the passenger seats, and I was kind of nodding off because it had been a long day. Mm-hmm. So she asked if I could, if she could drive, and I said, sure. And I went in the passenger seat, and she drove. And about a half hour later, I had a seizure, or a seizure-like problem, because maybe what happened, she said I sneezed, and she heard a snap. Whoa, okay. Probably when the artery dissected, it left a flaw in the artery somewhere along the course a defect or a hole, and a clot formed there, which would normally happen. Mm. And that clot was probably lingering there, and there may not have been any flow through that artery. We don't know. Mm. But you have four arteries going to your neck, two in the back, two in front. So I was probably living on three arteries for that week mm-hmm. and functioning fairly normal. Mm-hmm. I was running in the morning. I was We had planted <laughs> new trees in the orchard. I was out spreading manure and planting trees and Working all day and biking to work, pretty much as usual. Yeah. And when we were in the car, she said I sneezed, and that's maybe what happened. The neurosurgeon later thought probably what happened is a clot broke loose and migrated up and clotted off the important artery at the base of your skull. Hmm. And then the lights went out completely. I had kind of seized and went out and woke up about two months later in the intensive care unit in St. Paul. We went to a local hospital in Staples, and they didn't know what was going on, so they shipped us to St. Cloud, which is a little bigger hospital. And the doctor there, having heard the story, figured it was probably a carotid dissection, mm. fortunately. And then he arranged to fly me to St. Paul, where they have a neuros- neurosurgical unit at, St- at the hospital there, which is kind of specialized in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they brought me there, and of course, I don't remember anything, but... They do the usual thing. They put a monitor in my skull to measure the pressure in my brain. And they brought me to the OR, put a tracheostomy in because they figured I'd probably need it, put a feeding tube in. Hmm. Monitored my pressure, and it went got kind of high. So they, when, you're pressuring the, when your brain gets hurt, it swells. If it swells too much, it pushes the brain down into the base of your skull through the hole at the base where your neck nerves come from. Mm-hmm. And if it keeps herniating like that, it'll kill you because it cuts off your respiratory center. Okay. So they monitor your brain pressure 
continuously and they try to keep it down and if it doesn't get down if it gets dangerously high and you start showing the effects of it they have no choice but to cut a hole in your skull hmm. to relieve the pressure yeah they leave the skin they take the bone out in this case they took a piece of bone out about the size of my palm oh, right no here i'm kidding yeah enough to take the pressure off they leave the skin they put the bone in a freezer and when I came back to watch to see to Wenatchee, a couple of months later, they actually sent the frozen bone back with me. And then Dr. Peter Ward put it back in place when we can still feel it right That's fascinating. And I, I told people later the hair doesn't grow normally right there. Uh-huh. And I told people if I had known my hair was going to grow funny there, I never would have consented to the procedure. <laughs> You're sitting right across from me, and I can't tell. Well, it's just... When you cut it here, you can feel it. But okay. At any rate, Sue said, you know, when that happened, they they have a special radiologist who is trained to put a catheter up your arteries and try to undo blockages. Hmm. And she said he spent seven hours trying to figure out what was wrong and try to free up the artery, but he wasn't successful. Hmm. I woke up. This happened on about July 8th. I woke up sometime in August or early September. And like I said in that film, it was just a nightmare. Yeah. I and couldn't eat. I couldn't swallow anything. I couldn't see because my ner eye nerve had been affected. And I've completely lost my peripheral vision on the left side. So I don't. I lost a lot of vision. I couldn't talk. Your wife Sue told a story about you coming out of the coma and... She had a sense that you were there, but that you couldn't communicate, and she handed you a pen and a piece of paper. Do you remember that? Only from the story. I have no direct memory of it. Okay. I think your wife asked, do you know who I am? And you wrote Sue. And the nurse came over, and she asked if you knew where you were, and you wrote hospital. And then I thought this was really amazing. She asked, do you know what state you're in? And you wrote, state of denial and a state of confusion. Well, that was so true. <laughs> On that piece of paper. How much do you remember from from those early days? I remember a lot of vomiting. One night in particular, I couldn't eat, so they would they would pre all my food so I could swallow it. Cuz I couldn't eat solid food. Hmm. I remember but I was hungry. I'd lost my normal weight is 170 back then. I went down to like 130. Oh, wow. And I was skin and bones, but mm -hmm. I was so hungry after having lost all that weight that I was famished all the time, and I just wanted food. <laughs> but when I ate it, it wouldn't stay down. I remember one mm -hmm. night I was vomiting all the time. I remember one night laying in bed on my back, and I vomited up all, everything I'd eaten, and it was... <laughs> Of course, you're laying on your back. is all over my face, down my neck. Uh, what a mess. Oh, my gosh. And I vomited off and on for probably a month. Hmm. And the, one of the most annoying things is that I got neuropathic hiccups, which apparently occurs after a stroke. Okay. I had hiccups continuously for two months. I think they go away when I slept, but... And sometimes I'd get the hick without the up. I'd get a hick and my diaphragm would freeze up and I couldn't breathe. I'd have to pound myself <laughs> in the chest to get going again. <laughs> it was really annoying. <laughs> they tried the paper bag. They tried Thorazine. They tried acupuncture. 
until some one of the neurologists found out that Neurontin works, and I tried that, and it worked right away. And it came back one time, but I haven't really had hiccups since then. <laughs> Very annoying. That <laughs> sounds incredibly frustrating. I was so weak I couldn't roll over in bed. Couldn't get out of a chair, really. Couldn't stand. I couldn't feel my left leg. Hmm. When you lose all your feeling in the leg, you can't tell where the heck it is. Hmm. I'd stand up on it. I wouldn't. You can't tell where your body is in relation to your foot. So the leg gives way. And it's it's very obviously very difficult to walk because you can't stand on it. Mm-hmm. You have no ability to move it to correct your balance. And plus, you don't know where it is, so it's very hard to walk. I couldn't even stand without hanging onto a podium. In that video, you shared these five principles of life that you live by. Principle one, life is movement. And I want to come back to that in some of your earlier climbing. Principle two, tough is better than strong. I recall a quote from that video. You said, tough is when you bend, but you don't break. And strong is when you break, but you don't bend. Sue has trouble understanding that. She, I thought she took it wrong. Okay. If you compare it, an analogy is lumber. As an example, if you take Douglas fir and use it for a floor joist, it's very strong. It takes a lot to break it. But it'll break before it bends. Mm. You put enough weight on it, it'll just simply break and shatter. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strong. It'll hold a car, but it, it won't bend much before it breaks. It'll just break. Mm-hmm. Where you take a piece of oak, an oak 2 by 10 it won't break because it's tough but not very stiff. Mm. You put weight on it, it'll, it'll just keep bending. Mm-hmm. But it won't break for a long time. I had that experience when I was back in Minnesota farming. We built our own dairy barn, and we found some oak 2x10s that a neighbor had sawn up, and we used 2x10 oak for the floor joists of the hay mow. Mm-hmm. Well, when you, fill your, when you fill your hay mow full of hay, you got 25 feet of hay above that. And I watched it you know, a year or so later, and those oak joists, which I thought would be strong and straight, were bowed down about 2-3 inches in the middle on a 12-foot joist. Okay. And I realized then that if they had been fur, it might have held it. But if you put more and more weight on it, eventually it's just going to break. It'll mm. shatter like a piece of glass. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say tough is better than strong. Because if you're tough, you won't break, but you'll bend to accommodate the stress. Mm-hmm. If you're strong but not tough, you'll break before you bend it a little bit. <laughs> so that's the analogy. And it leads into the next one. The third principle you shared was work pays off. And in that video, I think you said it was really three years after your incident before you really felt more than half awake. And what was so interesting is that you also said that I think it was just a, a month or so after you got home, I, I assume from the hospital, when you set the goal of running the Paris Marathon. Is that about right? Well, it's um, a dream, not a plan. <laughs> okay. It was just a self-induced challenge, basically. Well, I went from St. Paul. It's an interesting story. I went from St. Paul. I was in a rehab hospital called Bethesda there after I was out of the acute hospital setting. And the social worker there, had, a, since I was not able to go home directly from where I was, 
they arranged for me to go to a nursing home in Post Falls, Idaho. Well, when Sue found out about that, she, she thought, that's not going to work. We want them home. So they arranged. Eventually, I came back to Wenatchee, of course, but it was a long story. Dr. Stu Freed has a daughter named Abby who had somehow found out that the uh, nursing home here called Colonial Vista had a painting of the owner's wife. His name is Carl Campbell, very wealthy man, has the triple C nursing homes here. Okay. And he also had executive flight, which is a jet service out of Pangborn. Okay. And uh, Abby saw that painting need to be refurbished, so she either fixed the one up there or did another one. And Carl Campbell was pleased, and when he saw Stu Fried, Abby's father, he says, is there any way I can repay you for that? And Stu said, well, as a matter of fact... He said he had a friend that needed to be flown back from Minnesota who was me. <laughs> so Carl Campbell arranged for a medical flight, a jet. We're talking 500 miles an hour on a, <laughs> on a little jet, Lear jet from St. Paul to Wenatchee. I was so weak they had to literally carry me onto the plane. And I remember vomiting several times on the way back. And I went from there to the rehab hospital here in Wenatchee. So that would have been from about mid-September until after Thanksgiving. Good two months. Hiccuping the entire time. And then finally when I got strong enough, I came back here to home. But I was really functioning no more than an infant. I couldn't really eat. I couldn't walk. I couldn't bathe myself. It took me about two years before I could get up and take a shower. I was so weak when I got home, I remember sitting in a chair almost continuously, doing a little bit of reading, but that's what all I could do. One morning I was in bed, I slept in bed, and I got up to put my clothes on. I had a cane on my right hand, because I used a four-point cane to get around. I wanted to reach my shoe on the floor, so I leaned forward to reach the shoe, I couldn't reach it, so I used my cane. I reached forward with my cane to bring the shoe closer. And as I leaned forward, I, I didn't have enough strength in my leg. I fell forward off the edge of the bed, head first onto uh. the tile floor. I remember thunk. Uh. Somehow I was able to get back on bed, but that's how weak I was. And it was probably another year at least before I could get up and go into the shower. We had a dandelion shower chair tub for the first couple of years, first year at least. And one day I remember we, we had a chair in the tub and I got out of the tub and I was going to brush my teeth. So I'm standing by the sink and Sue's at my side. I'm brushing my teeth and my leg, my left leg was so numb. I couldn't, like I say, I couldn't sense where it was. I just, occasionally I would just fall unannounced. I was standing there and I just fell hmm. to my left as always. And my head hit on the stool in the toilet. Uh. Luckily, I didn't get hurt any worse than I already was. And I remember being kind of trapped in the floor between the cabinet and the, and the toilet trying to get back up again. <laughs> Even with Sue's help, I could barely get back up. That was probably a year after I got home or so. What was the process like to pursue a goal like a marathon? Where did that idea come from? It's hard to say, Steve. I would say it just sprung out of hope. Hmm. Mix a little bit of hope with determination, that's what you get. 
get the Paris Marathon? I was inspired a little bit by a story or a book, at least a story that Sue had shared about a guy who they called not a stroke survivor, but a stroke thriver <laughs> okay. because he had recovered so well. And that's, that I love that encouraged me at that time. And then this idea of running a marathon just kind of came out of nowhere. I'm getting closer. I can actually see the light. First, you have to realize that running requires having both feet off the ground at the same time. And I told people over the years, the only time I have both feet off the ground at the same time is when I'm sitting in my easy chair. <laughs> but when you're running, of course, you're hopping from one leg to the other. Mm-hmm. And during that process, both feet are off the ground. That's how you distinguish walking from running. When you're walking, you always have one leg on the ground, one mm. foot on the ground. When you're running... At least momentarily, you have both feet off the ground while you're hopping to the other leg. Mm. I can do that from right to left because I can hop off my right leg, which is stronger, but I haven't haven't developed enough strength to hop off my left leg onto my right. But I've, I've run so much over the years that it's in my hard drive. And they say that everything you do on the right side also gets wired into the left side and so on and mm-hmm. vice versa. So sooner or later, my mind, my brain will figure it out again. My mind knows what to do, but it has to teach my brain. Interesting. It has to rewire everything, of course. So eventually, whenever I do on my left side, normally your your right side of your brain, of course, runs the left side of your body, sensory and motor. Mm-hmm. So if I lose the right side of my brain, it affects the left arm and the left leg, both sensory input and and muscles. So if I recover, say to the point of running, God, God willing, if essentially the left side of my brain will have to run both sides of my body simultaneously. Oh wow! That's going to take some pretty fancy rewiring. I'd have to say. <laughs> Sounds like you've completed a few marathons at this point. I know. Jer- well, Jack I'd say and I, I didn't even walk them because I don't walk very well. I wouldn't call it walking. I ambulated them. He ambulated them. <laughs> I don't go out for a walk. I go out for an ambulate. That's a medical term for just being able to propel yourself. Okay. Walking is a little more a little more sophisticated, of course. But I've, I've uh, developed a whole new appreciation for the gait cycle, I can tell you that. Pelvic rotation, knee flexion, all that stuff has to occur just at the right time. In that video, you described relearning to walk in stages. At first, it was just walking to your chair. Then it was walking out to the mailbox. Then it was walking down to the orchard, walking around the block. Do you remember any key moments that gave you a sense that you were getting back to being able to to do what you hope to do? I remember a couple unpromising moments. (laughs) Okay, maybe let's talk about those. My friend from Minnesota came to visit me probably the year after I got home. Okay. We walked down. I wanted to walk out to the pasture here, so we walked down the the grass to the pasture. I had one person at least on on each side, (laughs) and I probably had a cane in my hand to boot. We walked up that little gate and up to the house on that little grassy pass and I got about halfway up that path and my legs slipped out. <laughs> I went down on my face face first, which was the usual. It took three people to get me up, plus my own struggles. <laughs> Our daughter Annika has been a real 
real help. You know her. Mm-hmm. Her and Arthur, her boyfriend, walked me up the path over here, up Jacobson Preserve, all the way to Saddle Rock. One oh, day. wow. My left toe would catch, and I did several face plants, and both of them have to get me back up on my feet again. But we made it up to the up to Saddle Rock and back down again. That was probably the first thing that amounted to anything. Hmm. I recall at least once walking around the orchard, one time with my brother, one time with Annika, and my left leg would just, and with Peter Vallis one day in the driveway, I'm standing there, he's checking a bluebird box, and I'm just standing there watching him. And my, I must have shifted my weight without thinking about it, and my left leg just collapsed, and I was <laughs> straight down in the pavement to the gravel. I do recall I had a wonderful therapist named Grace Volson. She was terribly committed. She would come over at 5.30, 6 in the morning. She lived up to school, Chuck. Mm-hmm. She'd drive down here for, I'd make her breakfast like I made you breakfast. Mm-hmm. And I'd make her always extra breakfast, so I'd get a little bit of it, too. And then she'd take me to the loop trail, and we'd walk the loop. The first time we were preparing for the Olympia Half Marathon, so we decided we better walk the loop first. We started like 6, 7 in the morning, and we didn't get done till mid-afternoon. <laughs> the 10-mile loop? I'd have to bring about 10 miles. I'd have to bring coffee because about every 15 minutes I'd have to stop and get some coffee because <laughs> my mind was pretty pretty foggy yet and the, mm. took the caffeine to kind of jolted wake a little bit mm. so i drank i had to have caffeine almost continuously and i still drink i drank a lot of coffee before it happened immediately afterward i had to have coffee to kind of stay more lucid yeah and i still drink a fair bit of coffee as i told you yeah i think we're about a pot each in at this point in yeah. the morning <laughs> it sounds like you've always been very driven very determined but I wonder, is there anything that, that Grace told you or that Grace said that stuck with you that helped you remain hopeful during that time? Well, it's the old saying, never a discouraging word. We'd have delightful conversation. She would walk with me every single step of the way. And I'm walking, I'm talking maybe at the most two miles an hour. I used to run the loop on Sunday morning. I'd run the loop. I'd try to get done in an hour. Usually, usually be about 70 minutes, which is about 10 miles an hour, roughly at least. And I'm walking with Grace maybe two miles an hour. It'd take us five. The first time I think it was like eight hours to make it around the loop hmm. using the cane. But she was so patient. She'd walk every single step of the way. We'd carry on these lovely conversations because she's always laughing. Hmm. So it was just a matter of knowing that there was somebody there. Hmm. And we were always playing the next move, whether it be Olympia or the Wenatchee Marathon. Okay. And, of course, this is just walking or ambulating. Ambulating. <laughs> this morning when we were having breakfast, you were asking me about my climbing, and you asked if I'd ever been to Devil's Tower. I think you just said the tower, and you knew that I knew what you were talking about. but Right. It sounds like that place has always been a major place or, or a significant place for you. Where did that goal come from? Climbing Devil's Tower was just another one of those things that sprung out of nowhere, I would have to say. Did you start climbing there? I would say the first real climb, I cut my teeth there. Okay. The, there's a road, route called Solar, which is 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, 
And I recall that was a, a milestone leading that. Hmm. Because that's the first time I'd led 5'8 or 5'9. And McCarthy, North Face, we'd go from one route to another as many, many times it went there. McCarthy, West Face, Tulji Wood, Mr. Clean, El Matador, Casper College, Assembly Line. Durant's route several times with my wife Sue, brother Robert, and son Logan. Every time we had a friend going along for the first time, we'd drag him up the Durance route, <laughs> which is the so-called easiest way up there. Mm -hmm. So Devil's Tower kind of sprung out of nowhere. I remember uh, looking up a place to stay, and I, I knew that I didn't want to sleep on the ground anymore, so I found a lodge called Devil's Tower Lodge, and I was looking up this site on the Internet, and it looked pretty promising. In fact, in retrospect... I think I stayed there with our son Logan when we came back from Minnesota one time in a new car for him. And I wanted him to climb Devil's Tower, so we stayed at Devil's Tower Lodge. Although at the time, I didn't make the connection. Hmm. So when I called Devil's Tower Lodge to make reservations, I got Frank Sanders, the op owner-operator. And I told him the situation, and he was also very, very encouraging. He's just one of those kind of guys. Yeah. So I knew I'd find someone that'd be willing to take a chance and get me up there because he's also a guide. And a very tough guy, I might add. When I climbed with him that one year, 2018, his one knee was so bad he had to have it replaced within a couple months. But he was climbing like a cat, leading 5'8", <laughs> leading looking like he wasn't even working at it. <laughs> That's amazing. And he had his knee replaced in Colorado. And two months later, he climbed the tower with a replaced knee. <laughs> <laughs> and many, many times since, I'm sure. And he's in a, he was in in his early 70s. So when you were working towards the, the goal of getting on top of Devil's Tower again, it sounds like it took the first six months just to relearn to tie a figure eight. Did you have a list of small goals to work towards? Well, the goals kind of appeared as the challenges appeared. But okay. the first climbing, I realized that around here, probably the easiest climb would be at bandage at what they call the gorge mm -hmm. because i knew that there were routes there rated probably early small mid fives five five or so mm -hmm. and that there were pretty good footholds etc so i figured that if i was going to climb in my condition i'd probably have to go someplace fairly easy like vantage mm -hmm. so one of the people in our church monty olson was a older gentleman who'd been climbing for decades and he was willing to take me there I don't recall it taking a lot of persuasion, but he more or less volunteered to go there with me <laughs> the first time. And Carter Willis, one of our anesthesiologists who I knew was a climber, came with us the first time. But I also realized that I wasn't going to climb it barefooted or with tennis shoes. I had to have climbing shoes. Mm -hmm. So I finally got a pair, and my, everything hurt my foot. If I had anything tight, my left foot was really, really painful as climbing shoes are tight anyway. Okay. So I finally got a pair of size 14, which didn't hurt as much. But you can't climb with a pair of climbing shoes if they aren't laced mm. and tied. So I had to learn how to tie my shoe. Mm -hmm. One of the occupational therapists at Central Washington Hospital was able to teach me how to tie shoes one-handed, which I spent seven hours one morning learning how to tie them. <laughs> I was prompted by the need to tie my climbing shoe, but I had finally learned from 
Amy Jennings how to how to tie one hand. So I spent my first goal was to learn how to tie my climbing shoe. I spent an entire morning <laughs> just preparing for that climb advantage. And to paint a picture for listeners, you're climbing everything one-handed, just with your right hand. And it sounds like more or less one-legged as well. You have partial use of your left leg. Well, for the first, I'd say at least two years, all my, if I'm working in this shop, picture this, I'm doing everything with my right hand. I can only see the right half of what I'm working on because the left side is completely blank. I have visual spatial difficulties on top of that because I'm trying to put a plug-in in. All those little movements that are required with feedback were just about impossible. I could pound a nail, but that's about it. Hmm. When I got home, I couldn't throw a pine cone into a 55-gallon barrel from two feet away. I couldn't hmm. hit it because my visual spatial was so far off. Hmm. Wow. So when I'm working in the shop, I'm working with just one hand... I can only see the right half of what I'm working on, and I'm essentially standing on one leg. Because mm. my left leg, if I put weight on it, would often just collapse. So this climb advantage, you're climbing one-handed on a on a top rope. Well, Monty put the rope really tight so I could almost hang on the rope Okay. and advance with one foot and one hand. And Carter was below me. He'd place my left foot onto a little ledge. Okay. <laughs> So I could push a little weight off of you it. Grab your foot. I went up about 15 feet, and then they lowered me. So it wasn't very eventful, but uh-huh. it was getting out. Yeah. Did that first climb after your incident? Did that feel significant to be able to climb again? It wasn't significant enough to write down. Yeah. It was a milestone, I would have to say. Okay. Just kind of getting back on the horse, more or less, figuratively. What were some of the other milestones on the way to climbing Devil's Tower? Well, the Devil's Tower, once I could get up something as simple as Vantage, I knew it was just a matter of time before I could get up Devil's Tower. And I'd climbed the Durance route so many times, I knew if I was going to climb, that would have to be the route. Mm. I knew at the beginning if I were going to do it, it would take all day and then some. So I'd have to, I figured out, well, we'll go on the longest day of the year, June 21st. So the first time we went... I think it was the same year as our daughter's wedding, maybe 2015. Mm-hmm. Sue, Sue and I drove there with the intention of climbing on the 21st of June because I knew if I was going to be dragging all day, I'd have to figure out a way to get there. Mm-hmm. It would take the longest day of the year. The first attempt there, Sue and I drove. We stayed overnight. It's a long drive. We stayed in Missoula. Mm-hmm. Wade Hendricks, the ER doctor from Bellingham, was a long-term climbing friend. So he agreed to go to the tower with me, and he flew to Billings. This was on very little notice. He was f- working full-time in the ER. He had a family to work to contend with. He flew to Billings, meeting us about halfway there, and then we drove the rest of the way to the tower, and he stayed there for the duration of the trip. <laughs> had another friend, Dave Poggle, who I'd climbed with a lot in the past, he drove all the way from Minnesota, from Duluth, to meet us there. <laughs> and he's a busy guy, too. Your fourth principle that you shared in that film is that people are inherently good. And a quote that I'd love to share from you is that you said, I feel like I'm at the center of attention that I don't deserve. And then you said, none of us deserve any of this. It's all a gift. It sounds like you've had a lot of... A lot of amazing people and support. 
Well, some of it is people that were already friends, Wade and Dave Poggle and friend Todd Woods. Other people just sort of appear. And probably there's a little bit of people want to help. People feel good when they help, so there's a, it goes both ways, of course. But Have you always felt that way, that people are inherently good? I think so, yes. You can look for... You find out what you look for. So if you look for good in people, it's not very hard to find it. Hmm. I like that. Likewise, if you look for the bad in people, that's pretty easy to find too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we all have a quite a bit of both. You described that first attempt on the Devil's Tower as... You described feeling kind of lukewarm that first time that you, you tried the, it. In the one June. on the tape recall is the second attempt... Okay. The first attempt. <laughs> the first attempt was me, Wade Hendricks, Dave Poggle, and Frank Sanders. Frank Sanders being the guide again, going up the Durance route. And this was the time that we drove out there and we tried to do the longest day of the year. Mm -hmm. They had had a horribly wet spring, all kinds of thunderstorms. All the low spots were full of water there as we drove, and it was a wicked climb for me. As I told someone earlier, a couple months earlier, I'd walked the route of the Wenatchee Marathon, and I thought to myself that after I walked 26 miles, I figured I'd be really tired, and I actually wasn't. Hmm. After I climbed on Devil's Star, I figured I was going to be really tired, and I was. <laughs> so Frank led us. Dave and Wade and I came up second, third, and fourth. We got up about three pitches, four pitches. And it was getting dark, and Frank determined that we needed to bail out. There was bad weather coming. It was it was already dark and getting darker. And I couldn't repel. So he basically lowered me, and I recall that as being probably the worst climbing experience I've ever had. Coming down from one of the pitches, I kind of fall over the edge more or less on, on a rope, and Frank Sanders is lowering me. And like a sack of potatoes on the end of a rope, my left arm, when it gets cold and stressed, it sticks out like a tree limb, just as a reflex. Likewise, with my left leg, and I'm being lowered in the dark, I have absolutely no control over where I'm going. I'm not lowering myself, so I'm being lowered, and my left arm is sticking out, catching brush on the way down. <laughs> it was getting all scraped up. Totally out of control. It was terrible. It's dark. <laughs> we got down to the base and finally got on the trail, and then it starts raining. Oh, man. And I tell people the bad thing is it was raining bad enough we had to put our rain gear on. The good thing was there was so much lightning, we didn't need our headlamps. <laughs> you could see the trail. as light as day. There was so much lightning. <laughs> that sounds quite exciting. We got exciting. back to the lodge about 2 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Sue was kind of stressed out. I bet. How long between that first attempt and the second one that appears in that film? Well, I know certain got back, then I realized I'm not going to let this stop. I'm going to go again. Hmm. And I forget some of the details, but we went the next time, I believe, was 2018, roughly two years later. So in the meantime, I got connected up with Mark Shipman, one of the docs at East Wenatchee Clinic, Joel Bankin, told me about the climbing gym, which had been built without my knowledge. Okay. And he said, yeah, I'd try it out. So I got Mark Shipman's phone number and called him one day, and he uh, took me down there, and we started trying it out, one of the really easy routes on the second level first. 
They had holes that were like a telephone <laughs> receiver. You could hang on to them like a suitcase. And it took a long time to figure out how to put my harness on because they're kind of tough to begin with, as you know. Right. So after catching up with Mark Shipman and doing some climbing in the gym, we hatched the second second try, which was 2018, as I recall. And on this occasion, I recruited Stu Freed to go with me, and he graciously volunteered. He came over one morning, drove me to Seattle to the airport. We flew from there to Billings, rented a car. He drove all the way to the tower. We got there late at night, driving through Montana, Wyoming. That's the year that Nathan filmed uh, what he did, mm-hmm. 2018. So I was joined by Stu Freed. Mark Shipman was there. Stuart Hoover and his wife, Ton Von Tron, were there, more or less by coincidence. Jim Danini came up from Colorado to help. And Ralph Bavard, a medical school friend of mine and Wade's, came out from Minneapolis. How did that second attempt go? You know, strangely enough, it was a combination of factors, but I didn't do as well on the second attempt as, I, as on the first. Hmm. It was chilly, and I recall getting chilled. Mark, originally we were going to climb a rock called Solar, which is 5'8 plus, 5'9, the one that I kind of cut my teeth on. Mm-hmm. And I probably could have done that reasonably well because this is straight up crack in a dihedral. Mm-hmm. It would have been one grade easier than the assembly line, which I eventually climbed. But Mark had gone out the day before, and him and Jim Denini determined that I probably couldn't get to the base to climb. It's kind of an ugly approach. Oh, okay. Would have been hard for me. So we decided to go back to the Durance route a second time. But on the hike in, I I got kind of chilled. Mm. They gave me a jacket, which helped, but I never really recovered from... When your muscles are in the condition mine are, being chilled just makes it that much worse. They become more spastic and more toned. Mm. So I never really recovered from that being chilled in the morning. Okay. And uh, I didn't climb very well. It's an ugly climb to climb one end. You have an off width on the right. You have a crack on the left, which you can't use because my arm wasn't working. (laughs) (laughs) So I was kind of scraping my way up. But the second time, for whatever reason, being chilled and I didn't make it up the second pitch hardly. The first Mm. time I was out there, we made it up to the top of the fourth pitch. But on the second time, even though I had a lot of help, I only made it about halfway, two-thirds of the way up to Durance pitch, the second pitch, which is the crux. And then, as the film shows, they lowered me to the base of the second pitch, which is the top of a column. And then I had the notion of, I figured I don't want to be lowered, I want to rappel down. Mm. So Jim Danini was agreeable to belaying me on a rappel, so I rappelled off the top of this column and with one leg, it's very hard to per, to step off of a column without losing your balance. <laughs> I got about halfway down the edge of the column, and I my left leg gave out, and I oh, swung no. to the left. Uh-huh. I was like a puppet on a string. <laughs> I was swinging to the left head first. Oh, yikes. <laughs> and I smashed right into the column. Oh, no. The adjacent column with my Luckily, I had my helmet on. Uh-huh. Or I would have had a bad injury. I hit hard enough, I could have broke my neck. Yikes. But the interesting thing about that is that I'd forgotten to bring my helmet. And when I got about halfway up to the base of the base of the climb, Jim's wife, Angela, borrowed me her helmet. <laughs> and if I hadn't had that helmet, I would have really gotten hurt on, wow. that, on that rappel. 
So the second year was not any better than the first year. <laughs> but it also made me decide that the endurance route was not going to be the best route. As uh, I've discovered over the years, I don't tolerate the heat, particularly if I'm in the sun and all the routes on the south face, which are a little bit easier, are in the sun during the summer and going there in the summer during the climbing season. And me and my shape from Minnesota, I uh, would just wilt in the sun and the heat. Mm. So I reasoned that if I'm going to do a route there, I should do it on the north face. Hmm. You want you have to in the summer because you can't climb, obviously, in the winter. I knew that it would have to be warm because I can't tolerate the cold, as I said on that second attempt. Mm-hmm. So I would have to go in the hot part of the year, which is August. But I couldn't climb on the south side. I'd have to climb on the north side. So as I started thinking about it, I realized that there was a climb on the north face, or at least mostly on the north face, that would be in the shade. So if I went in August, it would be uh, shaded. Even though the air would be warm, it wouldn't be too cold, and it probably wouldn't be too hot, and it would not be in the direct sun. Hmm. And then there are other things that I figured I could do to increase my chances. One would be to bivouac on top, mm-hmm. realizing that getting up and down in the same day was going to be a problem. Well, I found out the Forest Service, the uh, Park Service, wouldn't allow bivouacking unless it's an emergency. So I kind of gave up on that idea. Okay. Bivouacking at the base wouldn't be much better. Assembly Line has a feature called Teacher's Lounge at the top of the first pitch, which was just big sloping ledge about the size of a picnic table and I thought maybe we could bivouac there but that turned out to be a bad idea for me to bivouac on a sloping rocky ledge <laughs> not to mention getting breakfast <laughs> would be very untenable the other thing I thought was increase my chance would be to go out and do assembly line which is one I kind of put my money on mm-hmm. is a straight up crack in a dihedral so I get my right hand into a crack, even a finger crack, I could advance myself if I had some pull on the rope. Mm. And it's kind of two parts to it. One is a, a pitch up to teacher's lounge, which is a good belay spot in this sloping ledge. And then there's the crux pitch above that, which is the crux of assembly line, 5-9-ish. And I thought the best way to increase my chance would be that the two lower pitches up to the teacher's lounge, one is 5'8", one is grade 5'10". Patent pending and new wave are the two routes. Okay. Which I thought I could probably do either one of those, potentially, with some help. So my thought was, let's go out there beforehand and rehearse the lower two pitches, or one pitch, just to get a feel for the approach and what the climbing's like and scope out the route above. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark kind of agreed to that, but when it may, I was going to do this in July during the hot of the summer, not in the spring when it was going to be colder. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, let's go in May for just a weekend, maybe fly out there, stay overnight, climb the next day, just the first pitch to get a feel for it as a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Well, he couldn't get his bio license that year because he, uh, on his physical, he had a heart irregularity, he required a cardiac ablation. Okay. So we couldn't fly out there in this little plane. We didn't want to take commercial airline or drive. It just took too long for the... It wouldn't be practical to take a three-day drive for a half-a-day climb. So we didn't get to rehearse it as as I had planned. But as it turned out, we got there. 
We flew commercial to, out of Pasco to Salt Lake to Rapid City, drove to Devil's Tower Lodge. We got there on Saturday evening, and I figured, well, the way it looked then, we'll do a tourist breakfast on Sunday, and that'll give us enough time to go out and do a rehearsal pitch. So we got there on Saturday, spent the night like a regular tourist, had a nice breakfast, got out to the base of the route, and we climbed just the first pitch. In this case, it was the 5-8 patent pending. And as it turned out, I was being belayed by Stefan Guyette, but it was a brutal climb for me with one hand. I was slipping like barn door off to the left. I was all scraped up. <laughs> it was a hard 5-8. But the plan as originally uh, envisioned worked out because we got to rehearse the first pitch before then, we got the next day early and, and intending to do the climb. Okay. But we had already rehearsed the first pitch, so we had a pretty good feel for it. The other thing I envisioned is, you know, these lower two pitches aren't that hard, 5'8", 5'10", especially for Stefan Guyot. We should think about climbing the first pitch in the dark with a headlamp mm. rather than burn up a lot of daylight struggling up the first pitch. So mm -hmm. Earlier start. And surprisingly, they agreed to that. <laughs> the second day we got up at midnight oh wow we got out well Stefan Guyette is superhuman we got up we had a boiled leg and a cup of coffee drove to the base we got to the trail off the parking lot and Stefan and Jake Leonard take off they said we're gonna go we're gonna go off ahead of you guys so Mark and I were lagging behind Stefan and Jake took off almost running by the time Mark and I got to where the base of the trail is through the brush or trees, they were already on the climb. They're at about two o'clock in the morning. It's dark as, as you can imagine. <laughs> Mark and I get to the base of the rock climb and Stefan and Jake are, Stefan's already on top of the first pitch. <laughs> he climbed 510 in the dark with a headlamp carrying a full complement of what is basically rescue gear, all of his complicated belay stuff, uh -huh. and a full rack and his supplies for the day Yeah, in the dark. Two o'clock in the morning. At two in the morning. Well, he got to the top <laughs> at two in the morning. <laughs> and Mark and I got there. Then then Jake followed to the first top of the first belay. And then I got up to the first belay stance. And then Jake led off the second pitch this is about five nine five ten little crack bear in mind jake leonard had never seen the tower much less climbed on it he's a gym climber not really a crack climber hmm. you know traditional climbing he's leading five ten finger crack in the dark with a full rack having never been to the tower before wow and not to mention you look off to the west and there was lightning <laughs> as far as you could see from one horizon to the other. Wow. And this, it had been raining like cats and dogs before we got there. There was thunderstorms everywhere. So it was, we were looking at a thunderstorm heading to us. There's lightning everywhere. And he gets about halfway up that second pitch and it starts to drizzle. Mm -hmm. Just a very soft drizzle. Not enough to wet the rock and make it slippery, but enough to make any normal human want to turn back. <laughs> you know, of the four of us, Stefan, Jake, Mark and myself, I didn't hear a negative word from one of them. Wow. We never even talked about turning back. And I've climbed with guys who would have insisted that we turn back, hmm. which would have been the smart thing to do. As I mentioned to Stefan, it's kind of ironic. We got to the teacher's lounge, and 
it had cooled off to the point where he had to put some pants on. I said, you know, Stefan, by the time we get to the top, it's probably going to be too toasty. It's going to be too hot. <laughs> sure enough, when we got to the top, the sun was out, and it was literally too hot by hmm. then or right at noon. <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of patience that it has taken to progress each little step through these three different attempts on these climbs. And it was interesting to hear you say in the film that you've always been an impatient person, but that it's it's double now. <laughs> You're even more impatient. That's that related to... to a process, I think, called when you have a stroke involving the right side of the brain, which I did, it leads to several phenomena. One is what they call left side neglect, hmm. which to me is a bad term. It sounds like child abuse. Hmm. And in fact is you just tend to ignore things on your left because you can't see them. Mm -hmm. But there is a true phenomenon of left side neglect, whether it's related to just the left side or the right side gets it too, but it's commonly called left side neglect. And in some cases it's so prominent that if you hold a person's left hand in front of his face, he will refuse to recognize it as his own or he'll shave just one side of the face. Wow. And I've had trouble with shaving the left side of my face but I maintain it's because I can't see it <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to pay attention to something that you can't see because my peripheral vision is completely gone on that side mm -hmm. if I look at your right eye I can't see your if I look at your left eye I can't see your right eye oh wow if I look at it I can see it but mm -hmm. so I say I can see what I'm looking at but I can't see what I'm not looking at <laughs> my central vision is fine okay tell me about your process of learning to be in a hurry one day at a time well, as I was saying, there's that phenomenon of left side neglect. There's also a phenomenon called disinhibition, which leads to impulsive behavior, which is what one manifestation is being in a hurry. Hmm. I find my found myself, especially then, always interrupting people because my mind had recovered and I felt like I could carry on a conversation but I couldn't wait for the other person to quit talking I'd butt in all the time you probably found me doing that today interesting that's related to a phenomenon called disinhibition so become very very impulsive and break down and cry without provocation hmm. tend to tell jokes more have a very poor filter so say things that aren't appropriate hmm. butt in on people's conversations and one thing I learned afterwards is that your central command that gives information for movements comes from your cerebral cortex. What actually signals the muscles, it comes out of your spinal cord. Those are lower motor neurons. So the neurons in your brain send a signal to the spinal cord to activate a muscle. If left to itself, the spinal cord only can do one thing, and that's to activate a muscle. Mm -hmm. And the net, the net effect of the cortex, the upper motor neurons in your brain, is the net effect is actually inhibitory. Hmm. It doesn't work by, by sending signals. It works by slowing the spinal cord down, by modulating the spinal cord. If you take away the central control center, your spinal your spinal cord kind of goes crazy with nothing to inhibit it. Mm. That results in spasticity. Okay. So, for instance, I have an exaggerated stretch reflex. If I stretch my muscles, it, it reflexes by contracting. That's called a stretch reflex. Mm -hmm. You have clonus. All manifestations of the spinal cord going crazy without inhibition, disinhibition and control from above. I mm. should say inhibition and control from above. 
And that happens in the muscles, but it also to some extent happens with your behavior, hmm. as I maintain. A lot of behaviors are kind of innate and crude, but your your brain has, your mind has to control your impulses. So if you lose that, you tend to do things that are impulsive and not very well controlled, saying things that are inappropriate because you don't have the normal filtering mechanism of the cortex. A lot of it can be explained neurologically, but it's not very pleasant to go through in real life. Hmm. And one of the manifestations is being very impatient. So that's what results in butting in on people's conversations, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, never had a lot of patience to begin with, but take away any control from the cortex and I was kind of out of control. But in the situation I'm in, I can't plan very much. I have to kind of look at the long picture. When I first got home, I recall praying to make it through the day. Hmm. If I could make it through the day, I could look forward to the next day. (laughs) So like I said, I've become where I do one thing a day, one day at a time. And I figure that if I do, I try to do one constructive thing a day. Okay. Even if it's just putting one block up on a wall I'm building or digging one post hole or chopping one sagebrush. I'll go out and chop one sagebrush. I was making a a piece of furniture that involved putting boards around a panel. I'd go out and one day I'd put one board on with a couple of biscuit joints. And that was my goal for the day. But if you think about it, if you do... One thing a day for 10 years, that's 3,650 steps in a forward direction. So that's the one day at a time aspect. So I can be impatient for the moment. I butt in on people's conversations. I trip because I'm in a hurry. But I can also concentrate on doing one thing a day. Hmm. Try to make every day at least a step forward, not a step backwards. You were just talking about praying to make it through the day. And that made me think of your fifth principle, which is God listens to prayer. In that video, it was really interesting. You said he probably doesn't answer your prayer, but he listens. He sends people to help you often before you ask for it. Well, that's a well-established principle of Christianity is that is prayer and uh, the fact that you don't always get your prayers answered, but you may, God has a different plan for you. And it may not be what you think it's going to be, but it will still work out in the end. That's where the faith comes in. And people just show up like, Mark Shipman kind of showed up out of nowhere. Grace Volson showed up out of nowhere. Frank Sanders showed up out of nowhere. Hear that faint squeaking noise? <laughs> What's that? In Minnesota, the corn grows so fast, up to eight inches a day, that they say you can hear corn grow. <laughs> We've had such luscious pear weather here, I'd tell people we can hear the pears grow. And that little squeaking sound you hear is the sound of a pear trying to stretch out of its skin from growing too fast. 
That's just a joke, of course, but... It's actually Roger... They are growing pretty fast. ...pouring his 12th cup of coffee for the morning. No, that's the pears. We have a 25-acre <laughs> orchard over there. Hear that? <laughs> you get 25 acres of pears. That's another good home math problem. Okay. You got pretty good math ability. <laughs> Let's see if we figure this one out. A little rusty. We'll see. Well, just try it. Okay. If our orchard will put out 400 bins of fruit... When they pack them and it comes in those big bins you see out there that hold about a thousand pounds of pears, mm -hmm. they're handled with a forklift. When you bring them to the packing shed, they pack those in the boxes. A box is 40 pounds. And when you get your packing report, they report how many boxes come out of one bin because if the fruit's no good, they got to throw it away. You don't get credit for a box of fruit. Mm. And if you have a good clean crop of pears they can pack 25 boxes out of one bin so your report will call a, a pack out how many boxes you get per bin so and a good pack out is 25 boxes out of one bin so if you have 400 bins and every box gets 25 every bin gets 25 boxes and then you carry that further they measure pears size by how many pears will fit into a 40 pound box. So the bigger the number, the smaller the pear. If you can fit 100 pears into a box, they're pretty small pears. If you can only fit 60, they're pretty good sized pears. Okay. So we'll say that these are size 100. There's 100, 100 pears per box. Uh huh. And you have 25 boxes in a bin and you have 400 bins. In the 25-acre orchard, how many pears is that? So that sounds it like... It turns out to be a fairly good, heavy, even number. 10,000 boxes, 100 each. So a million pears? A million pears. That's an interesting <laughs> number, huh? <laughs> All from that orchard. That's amazing. Pick one at a time. <laughs> we haven't talked much about your early climbing. It sounds like you got started in climbing around 22 years old, and as you said, you were a farmer in Minnesota and cut your teeth at the Devil's Tower. You also climbed the Eiger and Denali, you climbed in the Tetons, and you climbed in the Cirque of the Inclimables. I'm curious, do you have any, do you have any really standout highlights, standout climbs from, from before? You know, the, the one that stands out really is when I was about 10 years old. Okay. We had a dairy barn on the farm I grew up with. Typical old dairy barn with a, a big, all the cattle were in the lower level, and hogs in this case. And the upper level was a huge hayloft with a big roof that had a peak on top. On the end of the barn, on the lower loft, there was a lean loft, which we held our straw. The big part of the loft had hay. There was a lean on one side that held a straw. It was probably about eight feet high, and it tapered down to nothing on the edge of the barn. And on the end of that little lean, there was a window that was on the end of the barn, probably 15, 20 feet off the ground, and right above that, outside the window, was the eave of the barn, probably stuck out about 16 inches. Okay. And above that was, of course, the shingled roof. And right above the edge of that eave on the end of the barn, there was a big copper lightning cable, smooth about the size of your belt. Uh-huh. Smooth to hang onto it. And 
on earlier occasions, I was always had a, I had the climbing bug, like some people get a horse gene. I had the climbing gene. <laughs> I would climb up to the roof on the shortest side and walk around on the roof, and I'd, I'd hand over hand up that lightning cable to the very top of the roof and walk over to the center where the cupola was because there were pigeons nesting in a cupola. I wanted to see what their nest looked like. <laughs> so I'd climb up to the very peak and walk across the top over to the cupola and look in and then hand over hand down that cable to the flat part of the roof. Well, one day I was in the straw loft and I I looked out the window and there was an eave above me sticking out about 16 inches, maybe two feet above the window. Mm -hmm. So I got a notion of getting onto the roof. I crawled out the window, I reached up to the eave and I reached over the eave and I vaulted out of the window and pulled myself up over the eave and I grabbed that lightning cable and pulled myself on top of the roof. <laughs> 10 years old. I was probably 10 years old. <laughs> on other occasions, I recall, there was a, a tram, a, a metal carrier that went from one end of the dairy barn to the other. You'd, and it, it held a, a bucket that you put some manure in and you'd rail it out. It's like a miniature railroad track. Out to the outside the barn, you dumped the manure onto a manure spreader. Mm -hmm. Well, above that track, it was held on a beam. There was a door that you dropped the hay and the straw down into. And I recall we'd hand over hand on that rail like a tram from one end of the dairy barn to the other on the inside. And I recall um, grabbing the rail above my head, and I was probably you know five feet tall. I grabbed that rail. And I'd vault myself feet first, so my feet would go up through the haymow door, and I'd get myself up into the haymow, or the straw mow in this case. <laughs> Upside down with concrete five people. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'd do that every day. <laughs> Although the experience, Steve, that I really recall is at some point when I was a teenager, I, um, I got into birds mm. and... Uh, Inspired by my sister and her husband, I put up nesting boxes. In this case, for wood ducks, if you put a box with a hole in it up in a tree, it's an attractive place for a wood duck to nest, which normally would nest in a rotten tree with a hole in it. Mm -hmm. So we would put up these nesting boxes in trees, and the wood ducks would come by and they'd fly into the nest and lay their eggs and hatch out their young. And then everybody knows that the young would crawl at the box and jump out to the ground. Mm -hmm. Very interesting bird. But I got really into wood ducks, and I had, I made 63 of them when I was like a junior in high school in the wood shop. Uh -huh. I had them up trees all over the country there. And I would run around on a Saturday from one box to another, literally with a, in a dead run, to check them, and I'd record how many eggs and so on. I'd record what kind of tree the box was in. I'd record how high the box is up the tree. I'd I'd record how far from the nearest water. <laughs> I'd record how many eggs were laid, and I'd record how many were hatched because I'd check them once a week. <laughs> and I you put I put them up oak trees, elm trees, maple trees, whatever I could find, willow trees. And I had one favorite spot across the highway. There was a plot of forest. I had several boxes, a couple of them in oak trees. And I was walking around one day, and I thought, this is a perfect spot for a box on the edge of a swamp. It was an aspen tree, what we called popple tree. And they're notorious for having a lot of kind of weak, dead branches. Mm. But I had my mindset I was going to put a box up that tree facing over the swamp, about 15, 20 feet up. 
So what I would do is I'd put the box at the base of the tree. I'd have about a 30-foot rope. I'd sling the rope over my shoulder, leave the box at the base of the tree. I'd climb up the tree, and when I got to where I want to put I'd sling the rope over a branch, and I'd pull that box up, and I'd nail it onto the tree below that branch whilst I'm standing on something. <laughs> but this tree was kind of a rotten popple tree, maybe eight inches in diameter. I gotta get that box up there. So the first time I tried climbing and I got to these dead branches and they'd break off <laughs> and I couldn't make it to the top. Well, I kept trying and eventually the only way I could make it was to shinny up, you know, with your chest mm. on one side and your arms over the just back. I'd inch my way up like an inchworm, just shinnying up the tree. Yeah. And I looked like I'd been through a wash machine. I was all scraped up, but I made it to... <laughs> well, the first time, I broke off every dead branch on the way up. Yeah. But I also learned that if I put my foot on the nubbin at the base of the branch, I could climb it up, climb up the tree. So mm. even though I just had tennis shoes or some cheap farm shoe on, <laughs> I learned how to make it up the tree by using those little nubbins at the base of the branch <laughs> and climbing that way and after several tries, I could climb the tree, and I checked it every week once I got the box up. I got to where I could climb that tree without much thinking about it. You go down the same way? Yeah. <laughs> That's where I kind of learned that, aside from hanging you know, from branches a lot, I had pretty good arm strength. Huh. I spend a lot of time in trees. I recall falling asleep on a branch one time in that <laughs> same woods. I climbed up about 15, 20 feet, crawled out a branch about 10 feet from the trunk, and I laid down in a in a fork and I fell asleep probably for an hour or so. So climbing trees was really the beginning. Hmm. And the other thing I did was climb silos. Okay. This was a little bit more after I'd met Jim Danini, but I figured we built silos, which are those concrete structures with metal bands around to hold it together. Mm -hmm. So we had two of those on our farm. And the older silo, the Wadena silo, had the staves weren't flat. The the rod went around, but the staves weren't flat. They were corrugated. So I had a little notch there where the, where the bar went over the stave where I could get my fingertips in, probably about three-quarters of an inch deep and an inch and a half wide, just enough to get a good grip with your fingertips. So the way you would normally get to the top of a silo was a ladder that was put on when it was built, a metal ladder, little one. But I, I figured I could make it up to the top by climbing on those rungs, which are about the size of your index finger of metal rungs that go all the way around. Yeah. So I could get my fingertips in those little holes, those little gaps, and I could, even with work boots on, I could climb to the top and back down again. This was only like a 30-foot silo. What do you think the grade was on that? Well, it'd be a 5-1 now. Okay. Two, you know, <laughs> five, five maybe. You just got to be able to do a pull-up. Okay. You can climb a ladder, you can climb a silo like that. It just requires fingertips. The boots don't stick on very well, but good enough. Well, the other silos that we built had a flat stave on the outside. They weren't corrugated, so you had to really rely on putting your fingertip on the rod itself, mm. which is a pretty minimal hold. It's a horizontal rod about the size of your index finger, maybe five-eighths of an inch diameter. But if it's flat against a concrete stage, you've only got that rod to hang onto. You don't have anything to stick your fingertip into. Mm. And it's also much harder to get your foot to stick on. But I I started slow. I'd just go up a couple of rungs and back down again. But I I learned how to climb those, those kind of silos with just my fingertips and a pair of work boots on. 
And I do recall you asked about instances that I recall. Yeah. I was building silo at the time, and a standard silo in those days would be a 16 by 40. Another one would be a 20 by 60, meaning 20 feet in diameter, 60 feet high. Mm-hmm. We'd build them from the bottom up with a scaffolding in the center, pulling up one stave at a time and putting the hoops around. And in this case, I was building a silo that was a 24 by 80, pretty good sized silo, 24 feet in diameter, 80 feet high. It was for a local farmer named Jim Jackson. And I was getting kind of rambunctious in those days when we, I was the foreman. When we got the silo built, we went in for lunch in his house. They often serve us lunch. And I got kind of this wild notion when I got, when I came out from lunch, I walked over to the base of the silo and I climbed to the top with my work boots on, <laughs> 80 feet on just these little metal hoops. And he was kind of standing outside his house with his mouth agape. <laughs> I bet he was. And I was probably, I suppose, 20, 23, something like that. It would have been certain death if I fell. But, <laughs> yeah. But I didn't. What about mountains or rock climbs? Any that uh, you're most proud of or any that really stand out? The first milestone was solar at Devil's Tower as far as a... Well, we did some interesting climbing in Minneapolis. Wade and I were both going to medical school, and they have these dolomite bridges that go across the Mississippi Okay. in a couple of locations. And those, those dolomite bridges are made out of big squares, rectangles of dolomite that are stacked and they have arches that go across the Mississippi with big columns in the middle and big columns on both ends. And the dolomite has really nice fine features for face climbing. I'd say average 5'10". Okay. But nice little features for fingertips. (laughs) And these are probably 20, 30 foot climbs. We would top rope kind of fun and then uh, there was one notable arch like a Roman arch on this railroad bridge by a place called St. Anthony Main a little tourist stop and there was this big arch bridge 30 feet high in the center maybe 40 50 feet across with these big dolomite blocks and there was a crack that had formed uh, across the middle of this overhead arch it was solid dolomite blocks one side to the other all the way around there was a crack that went up one side all the way across the underside of the arch and down the other side. So Wade and I got the notion that we're going to climb this with an aid climb. We obviously couldn't free climb it. Uh-huh. So we got a rack of pitons, and unbeknownst to the people who owned the bridge, we started climbing this. We spent the whole, the whole Saturday. We pitoned up one side, got to the upper part, and then we pounded in pitons overhead all the way across the underside and down the other side to the ground again. Oh, man. <laughs> I called it aortic arch. Aortic arch. <laughs> it would have been probably considered A1. Okay. Simple A, just pound a piton in, yeah. clip into it. I have uh, a few listeners that submit questions for the show. And I told some people that you were going to be coming on. And I got one question from someone. He was curious if you take as much from an experience of relative difficulty. You know, take your successful ascent of Devil's Tower a few years ago. Did you get as much out of that as you did from something that was more objectively difficult before? You mean comparatively? Yeah. Even more. I would have to say... At- 
first response, yes, more effort, more reward. Hmm. Kind of a natural relationship. I've done climbs that required more work, but I would have to say not more effort. Okay. Denali was a lot of work. We had 70-pound packs going up this steep snow slope, and 70-pound pack for a out-of-shape medical student is a lot of work. <laughs> that was a lot of work. Climbing the Grand Teton in the winter was a lot of work. I recall being so exhausted coming back that we were counting steps one foot at a time coming back. We had gone up this kuar, which was about had about four or five feet of snow with heavy packs. The snow was so deep, we'd, and we had snowshoes on. In order to get a footing with a snowshoe, we'd have to lift the snowshoe about to the level of our waist and then stomp down to get footing and, <laughs> and nudge our way up this valley that way. That was a lot of work. By the time we got down, I was so exhausted I could hardly walk out. I was counting every single, and I didn't do that much, you know, count every single step. Hmm. I do that now when I walk, but for different reasons. That was a lot of work, but I don't recall it being as much effort, hmm. which is the whole total of what you're doing. Hmm. A little bit of risk, a little bit of hurting, a lot of physical work. But the reason I quote a sin in that little video clip about it being a fair bit of effort, not much work, work te in a technical aspect is moving a weight through a distance. So if you get to the top of Devil's Tower, you've done a defined amount of work. You've carried maybe 200 pounds up 600 feet, so you can measure that amount of work mm -hmm. in foot pounds or, whatever, or however you decide to measure it. But that doesn't necessarily correlate with the effort involved. Mm. If you're in good shape, everything is running efficiently. It's not that much effort. Back in the old days, we'd climb it in a couple hours, and I never felt like I was tired of putting much effort into it. It's, mm -hmm. kind of, it's like walking. You don't think anything about it when you can do it, but when you can't do it, it takes a bit of effort. Or running or anything like that. Is there something that you've been feeling especially grateful for recently? That's something that I ask all my guests. Well, there's the old fallback of grateful to be alive, but it's a list of things, probably as long as my arm. <laughs> I'm grateful that we live where we do. And as you already know, the valley is full of really wonderful people. I can't tell you how many times I've had a youngster or a teenager open a door for me. I don't believe that when I was young, I would have thought much about it, but the youngsters now, the youth are... Very, very good. Much better than I was as a youth, I would have to say. Hmm. I've been walking down the sidewalk, catch my toe and trip and fall flat on my face, and the first thing young person will walk over and ask if they can help. I will usually shrug them off, but the idea that someone would go out of their way to offer to help is still something to be grateful for. What about a next goal? Do you have the next thing in mind that you're willing to... I think to... about that periodically, Steve, and I'd say my next goal is to get through the day. <laughs> That's great. That's a great goal. I do have a lot of ideas that have popped up, the miniature log cabin being one. Mm -hmm. 
I haven't lost sight of the Paris Marathon, although our daughter wants to go to Florence. That's going to be our fallback. Okay. But I've kind of got my teeth in it one way or the other. Whether I can get both feet off the ground at the same time it kind of remains to be seen. <laughs> Will you go back to Devil's Tower again? I'm going to go back there just to be a tourist. Okay. If I had a chance, I'd show you some photographs that... When I was there in 2018, I noticed that there were mountain bluebirds in the vicinity of his of Tower's Lodge backyard. Mm. And I've always been putting up bluebird boxes, particularly mountain bluebird boxes, up Badger Mountain. Okay. So I thought, I need to get some boxes out here. So I sent him two or three bluebird boxes, and he put them up. And a couple months ago, I got some photographs on my email from... Devil's Tower Lodge, there had been a person from the University of Minnesota who was an amateur photographer. He's a professor there, and he had taken some lovely photographs of bluebirds in those boxes. In one case, it was flying towards the box. In a couple cases, they were sitting on top with grubs to feed the young. One was sitting on top of an old wagon wheel. These were wonderful pictures. So I told Frank... I'm going to come back next spring and when they're nesting and see for myself. So just go back, maybe fly back with a small plane, spend a night or two, have a tourist breakfast, lounge around, read. But I don't, I don't think I want to climb it anymore. If I get my prosthesis working, I may change my mind. Mm. Is that something you're working on? Yeah, it's been a slowly evolving process. It's based on the principle that my left arm can pull fairly well, and it's got tone. Mm -hmm. So I can hold a chainsaw or a weed eater, something that has a handle in my left hand. I can work a weed eater for eight hours, wow. and the hand will stay gripped on the handle. I've got a chainsaw. I haven't used it very much, but the same thing will be true. I can put my hand on the handle, and it'll stay on and take a fair bit of weight. Sometimes it'll fatigue and let go, but... For the most part, it'll hang on. The muscles have a lot of tone and natural strength. Mm -hmm. And depending upon the position of the wrist, there's some tenodesis effect. At any rate, what we're going to do is I'm going to have a prosthesis that has a gauntlet on the forearm to hold things in place. And it's going to have a grip that sticks out into my palm, which is what my hand will hang on to. Okay. And it'll have a hook out the end that is something that will hook onto the climb, during mm. the climb. And it'll be something I can just I can put on with one hand. And I got That's a cool. person that I met at the gym is a fabricator of other products, and he's gonna help me make one out of it. It'll be made out of aluminum, for the most part, aluminum and leather and Velcro most likely. And I made a little cedar, took a two by four cedar board and fashioned it down into a little grip, like the little grip that's on a five gallon pail, mm -hmm. more or less. It's actually shaped off of a long-necked beer bottle. Okay. That's because that's a shape that is a that has a natural fit to the hand. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I took the measurements off of a fat tire beer bottle <laughs> and sanded down a piece of cedar to make and drill a hole in the center to put over the metal. But we're in the very early stages. It hasn't. It's been drawn up and designed, but it hasn't gone to a fabricator in Seattle yet. I'm hoping that in the next several months, 
Then we'll take it out and try it at the gym, and then if I get it to work, I may try it on actual rock. All right. So I'm looking at potentially outer space. Well, we'd start okay. Castle Rock, of course, in yeah. the climbing gym. But if it works, I would consider trying outer space up Snow Creek Wall. Yeah, outer space is a really popular, what, 5.9 yeah. on Snow those, Creek Wall? Those knobs on the upper pitch would be kind of fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's uh, like a really amazing 5.7 crack pitch, but it has these chicken heads on either side of it, these cool knobs that you can yeah. grab onto. Awesome. Well, Roger, this has been such a delight. You've been an incredible host this morning. Thank you so much for, for having me and for sharing all your stories. Well, you're very welcome. What's in store for the rest of the day? Well, I'm going to go back to the house and get emotionally prepared to go back out and work on that wall. Okay. I call it the COVID wall. <laughs> the COVID wall. I've been, I was off work for three months. More like I call it home house arrest. <laughs> Because of this damnable COVID thing saying <laughs> I, I dug post holes and started working on the wall. <laughs> the wall's looking great. Thank you. <laughs> I look forward to seeing it finished. All right, Roger. Thanks again. I'm off my... Like we do it.